Today I'm going to talk about what I'm calling the SMART mandate. Um, and so without further ado, I'm going to get started. My talk will run about 50 minutes, but um, hopefully you'll be really entertaining. So I'm going to be bringing a kind of, I'm a historian of science by training. So um, I'm going to be bringing a sort of historical, I guess, uh, perspective as well as um, hopefully a political one on these questions uh, of the sort of implication for contemporary ideas of ubiquitous computing and um, immersive environments in the present. So just to begin, um, so speaking of the present, you know, I'm a historian. Um, this is Songdo, South Korea. It's, um, I've been working ethnographically here over the past two years. Um, this complex is considered a prototype or test bed. That's what its developers, um, primarily Cisco and a large Korean tribal um, uh, Costco call it, they literally call it a test bed, so it's a demo, if you will, for the future of urban life. It's claimed to think that it's a smart or ubiquitous in Korean parlance city. Um, it's also a utopia, part of the new economic, free economic trade zone, the global business utopia engine. Um, and uh, it's part of a new global infrastructure of territories, what we like to call in design and architecture spatial products. Uh, being rolled out and produced by high-tech companies and leveraged through finance capital, ranging from India to Ecuador to Africa, and these just a range of other smart developments being currently rolled out primarily by Cisco, IBM, um, SAP, Simmons. So um, this is part of a series of projects I'm currently working on, and also I'm working on developments like this um, in Mazda or Abu Dhabi. In Singapore, and um, what groups all these smart, if you will, projects together, along with a series of other sites such as secure data centers, logistical systems. This is the other side, that, if you will. This is the sort of fancy. These are the fancy front ends, if you will. This is like the interface to what is actually um, a logistical and computation. This is the ancient airport and. Um, a, current uh, port facility that they're developing over there. These are amongst the largest, or hopefully going to be the largest, the port facilities still in construction um, in East Asia. And they're also computationally immersive environments. So from the kind of um, computationally sort of uh, oriented supply chains that are kind of run, you know, these current um, ports almost have no people on them. So, you know, everything is basically uh, dealt with through these um, hyper-mechanized and robotic um, uh, container, you know, these, uh, these things that pull the containers out, everything's RFID tagged, everything's kind of scanned and moved around essentially through um, very complex logistical systems. So these are the kind of places, these are the, these are the realities, if you will, produced by computation that I study. Um, so, and I think we should be thinking about them in relationship to VR, but what groups these sort of logistical sites, data centers, um, but also things like ecological preserves. This is Gardens by the Bay in um, Singapore, which is essentially a very high technology, um, eco kind of biobank. Basically, they've decided that uh, all these plants are going to die out, uh, but you can see them here. The irony about this eco preserve is that those big um, things you're seeing, you've probably seen this on SAP ads in the airports, are actually vents because this, uh, most of these plants can actually grow in the environment in Singapore, so this is a huge energy consuming um, garden. Basically, they have to keep the environmental controls for the, um, for the plants in order for them to grow, so there's kind of an irony here, right, that in this biobank it's massively consuming energy. Of course, that irony is pervasive um, since all uh, digital technology consumes a lot of energy. And so this idea that bandwidth is going to equal sustainability, is going to equal life, uh, this sort of mantra of smartness is not intuitive to me. So I'm wondering about uh, kind of how we came to think that increased computational um, penetration into life is going to in any way kind of rescue us from the current ecological disaster that's unfolding. But what all these projects share, whether they're smart cities or biobanks, logistical ports, or uh, secure data centers, is um, uh, they imagine the future in terms of apocalyptic or devastating events, whether those of terror, informatic, or otherwise economy or environment. And they respond to this imaginary almost hopefully, optimistically even, through the ever-increasing application of an intervention into life through computing. 
is what I'm calling a kind of apocalyptic hopefulness that we're currently speculating on. In fact, one might say we're speculating in the hope of massive forms of extinction and death, and in fact, this has been said very often. Um, what's also really interesting about all these spaces is that they're also geographies of sensation and perception. And I'm really interested in the political economy of sense, how we organize the senses is, for me, a political question. What makes these cities smart is the vast amount of data that, in theory, they will collect and, in theory, monetize from the environment and the populations that inhabit them. So the going um, market plan for Sondo is that the data set will be sold from the inhabitants instead of taxation. So you'll sell your data rather than pay taxes. Um, so this is the control room at Sondo. It's a basic IBM um, uh, 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 kind of uh, control room. These are arrayed. There's a number of cities that have them, the most famous probably being Rio. Um, as you can see, it's the world is interface. And what's astounding about this uh, display here is that um, these monitors serve no immediate function for human eyes. The engineers and administrators cannot apprehend or act immediately on these images. Rather, all this traffic, there's the traffic, environmental, CCTV data, um, is autonomously being analyzed by IBM software platforms and algorithms. There's simply too much data, and very often emergency systems for both water, the electrical grid, et cetera, for the transport systems will um, begin to act. If there's an emergency, they'll, they'll stop or start acting ahead of the ability for human beings to actually act. So there's a real question about what is this architecture doing? So what's the function of all these screens if they're not actually serving anything you know, um, and it's and this sort of kind of immersive environment where we're basically increasingly networked and engaging with our systems, systems that we can't necessarily apprehend or understand, might be linked to other systems that we've talked about a little bit in this conference. For example, things like Google Glass, where the whole city, right, is this kind of immersive, um, interactive environment that you're constantly being channeled through, as well as other forms of labor. This is a um, uh, analysts for the U.S. military with an EEG being strapped on them where basically um, the idea is that the analyst's brain gives us signals as to which image they find potentially important um, a few milliseconds ahead of the time that it takes for the analyst to actually you know, punch a button or, or, or consciously identify the image and that you can enhance performance by 10 to 15 percent if you kind of directly link, if you will, into the brain to the to the analytic system. So these kinds of forms of labor are very interesting to me, and they're part of this kind of environment of, of perception that's in, included in thinking about ubiquitous computing. So um, one of the things, so in order to try and think about this sort of situation, how did we get to this place? Um, what is all this smartness that is currently kind of running the world? Um, you know, what's going on? And if there's something really interesting about um, all this sort of speculation on the end, and it's that the end is never presumed to arrive. When asked about Sango, so, um, which is largely kind of not that successful development financially, there aren't that many people there, um, but when I asked the engineers at Cisco and the developers, they kept just calling it a test, or an experiment, replicatable, in sort, a demo. It's failure just in the reason for another version. So, you know, literally Cisco's like, well, if this doesn't work, we'll build a better one. Or better yet, we'll improve your city with the infrastructure we're testing here. So it's failure just always a reason for another version. So what's the logic of this um, demo? Um, how does it work? That's what I'm going to unearth. So to think about this kind of situation, both of a perceptual architecture as well as the relationship between the demo and the future of life, I want to think about this historically. So that's just kind of a, a entry point to this discussion. Um, but really, now the talk is starting. So just kind of put that in your head, and now we're going to begin. So to begin, demo or die, the famous words of MIT Media Lab founder Nicholas Negroponte, and always appropriate for a keynote, right? Um, these words gesture to a feature at the heart of my talk, which is the relationship between computer immersive environments and biopolitics or even survival. It also relates to history itself of the demo as a form of knowledge and power. So one of the things we talked a lot about is the transforming nature of science and 
kind of inquiry. Um, so how do we think about the demo as itself, kind of knowledge production practice? And what are the stakes of the demo? Stakes for the de and stakes for the demos, which is to say democracy. What type of futurity is being produced through all this um, demoing and dying? And to ask about this demo and stakes, I'm going to start in a place that you're probably going to be like, what is she doing? But just bear with me for a moment and um, you'll see where it's going. I want to open with one of the better, in my opinion, artistic elaborations of the idea of the demo or die concept. Um, so, um, can you get more volume in there? Well, okay, just imagine that this is really loud, but I do need um, volume at some point. But anyway, put the microphone on the top of your speaker. Just put it, put it up your speaker over your computer. Well, it's hooked okay. into the machine. So, um, I just played that for a moment, but imagine if you're in a gallery, this is a multi-channel um, uh, installation, and you would be here. It's very, very loud, so it would be very, most cacophonous, and you'd hear a lot of sound. In this recent piece titled Serious Games 1 through 4, recently deceased filmmaker Harun Faruqi cuts into four scenes, different scenarios from recent wars and war games. In the longest segment filled with two channels titled Immersion, which you see in your like lower right-hand corner, um, we see juxtaposed between images of war simulated and mediated a soldier undergoing post-traumatic stress disorder therapy for experiences in Iraq um, through reliving the memory in a simulated game. In watching this piece, what is immediately clear is the way in which the pre-battle training and the post-trauma treatment are strikingly similar, and the conclusion one might garner is that we're being conditioned to never experience war as pain or trauma. This trauma of being unable to feel care or empathy for others is doubled and the installation itself creates various barriers of proximity with its chosen subject of war. The viewer is being trained, so to speak, to shift attention between the screens, so when you actually watch this, right, it's hard to focus on any one thing, then actually look at any one of them. Faruqi, so it's an information inundation sort of installation. Faruqi's work reveals how our very vision and cognition is now so thoroughly mediated in many ways mechanized as to be in human. By implication, the PTSD treatments very practices indicate that the place of the screen may no longer be about uh, human subjectivity. It's not anthropocentric or morphic. It does not show us anything about the world outside but, or represent anything. It's actually not meaningful, if you will. Um, it doesn't even center on the human body as a target, but rather as a conduit, as part of a network, um, where the familiarity of an event is used to simply subvert trauma, rewire the nervous system, and increase the compatibility between the subject and the network and the consumption of data within, of course, this installation and uh, within this military setting. And I open with this piece because it's essentially a reenactment um, of, of um, of PTSD treatment and also simulation gaming Excuse in the me. military. Could you repeat in just a few words what you just said? What, what I just said. What do you mean? You said okay. a lot of things, but what's the summary of that? What's the summary? About the installation you showed. Yeah, I'm you gonna said, discuss can, can it. Can you give me the short version of it? What does it mean? What does it mean? It means that essentially he's trying to show you that the way that the military trains that the entire that we're that our vision is being basically militarized, that we're being kind of conditioned, if you will, in modes of perception and perspective that are military, if you will. Okay. You don't have to agree with him or with me. You can just No no first I want to understand before I disagree. Okay. Good. Um, so essentially it reperforms, um, so he thinks he's reperforming treatment, and of course we can talk about this. I know there's going to be a really interesting talk coming up on PTSD. This is an artistic and that critique of militarization. Um, through gaming in the military, and it reperforms perhaps one of the most infamous and pioneering uh, models built in the late 1970s for creating immersive environments and implanting pre-battle cognition and strategic knowledge, mainly the Aspen movie map, in 1978, built by the Architecture Machine Group, headed by Nicholas Negroponte, that would then become the Media Lab. 
Um, this lab offers a classic study in how attention and security have been married in a manner that anticipates our contemporary smart cities and responsive environments. In fact, arguably one of the most important locations influencing the design of contemporary smart cities, the Sangas of the world, was um, the Architecture Machine Group. Um, and I want to emphasize the global dimensions of these methods, therefore, because in fact all the Cisco and Korean directors of their smart cities projects were trained at MIT. Um, so it produced most of the engineers, but in the meantime, Songdo is now feeding back into NYC and Rio and London um, and many other cities globally through the imaginaries and management strategies of contemporary urban planning, policing, and logistical systems. But I also want to open with this because I'm interested in moments where discourses begin to change. Demo was an emerging discourse, not only at MIT, but across the scientific and social field, particularly in what is now labeled high-tech and creative industries. Um, as a new mode of creating practice, a new way to inhabit and computing, a new model of knowing that also allows us to envision creating entirely computation-generated environments, and I want to talk about its logic. So um, if you're at a design school or even engineering school, right, we demo, we prototype, we do these things all the time. Versioning is kind of a given uh, in the land of software. It's my contention that work on responsive environments in the 1970s, particularly by Architecture Machine Group, especially practices informed by cybernetics, reconfigured the idea and practices of visuality and cognition, how we see and how we think, in a manner that made perception and environment a medium. So, Many of the things that we've talked about um, as seemingly natural or automatic assumptions took a lot of work to realize. And that's part of my point as a historian. It is not at every moment in history that we consider intelligence to be networked or a matter of process. And it's not at every moment in history that environments can suddenly become interfaces or interactive. These have took um, a lot of work. So the idea of environment as itself a medium, something material, abstractable, and technically replicable is historically unique. Um, and that this sort of history is separate from earlier histories of subjectivity and objectivity. In doing so, Architecture Machine Group was part of a larger movement that transformed how we know, epistemology, and what we know, ontology of both people and machines to make us capable of envisioning what today we will often call clouds and crowds, epistemology of big data that we now accept as seemingly natural. As we shall see, and perhaps not surprisingly, biology, race, and sex play critical roles in conditioning spectatorship within these architectures. The Architecture Machine Group prototyped its conception of interactive and immersive in media through engaging with race as a demo for the production of future responsive environments, emerging the representation of race with the science of machines. The final effect is to insist not only on the limits of human vision, but to produce new ideas of species and territories, this governmentality that we're really interested in, like do literally nervous stimulation, speculation, a kind of what I'm calling neuropolitical condition that goes beyond um, an initial biopolitical formulation of subject and population. So um, this idea of population is itself a constituent of media, something that I'm really interested in because it allows me to think about other types of um, machine infrastructures, not only grounded in the von Neumann machine. So um, that's something that I'm kind of working on, this idea of population is itself a medium. Uh, this work, therefore, poses serious questions, ones I hope to engage with concerning what is a medium or media object. And since we're discussing the erosion of the ability to witness or encounter other human or living things, what a critical practice might look like. So we're very interested in ethics here. Um, so I want to understand what are the stakes for the demo for us, what are the stakes of living in these hyper-mediated environments in the moment when we ourselves are attempting to rethink what it means to be critical and what type of practices we have to develop to engage with this um, world, uh, if we will, ethically or politically. So, demo or die. So here's an uh, image again of the Aspen configuration. You can see an individual in a comfortable Eames chair playing the system. Um, the system itself was originally built through a curfew survey of Aspen, a fancy ski resort in um, Colorado that I've never been to, but I'm visiting now. Um, using gyro-stabilized cameras that took an image every foot traversed down this fancy place. It was a system working through laser discs, a, um, a joystick, and, and um, sometimes a, 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 a computer. Sometimes you could just press the screen. So um, you, it depended whether or not there was kind of a joystick involved. <coughs> it would allow the user to traverse the space of Aspen at their leisure and speed. As you can see, it's multi-scalar. You see an abstract map on the top while you're actually traversing. 
Imagine, this is a demo, as the last existing demo of the actual system. So imagine if you're playing this, it would be like a first shooter game. You'd be going through it at your speed. You could stop, you could start. You could also go forward or backwards. You can navigate in reverse, there's sort of a temporality into the system. And you could also place objects into the space, so it's like an early sketch up. Um, as I mentioned, there's a scalar component. You can see the system through an abstract map at the distance on the top, while simultaneously navigating within the space. So it's multi-scalar um, in terms of kind of a effect. And the effect Negroponte said was to have so much recorded that the experience was, and I quote, seamless. And um, we might want to think about the design and what would cons constitute a sort of a reality effect or seamlessness in virtual reality environments. There are no computers to be seen. This is not a model, it is Aspen. It's Michael Namark, an artist who worked on the project, who has written and I've interviewed, and I quote, Aspen is a verb, not a place. It's a way to live, it's a way to be in the world. And quote, this is the world as interface. Originally, the project was commissioned by the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, <laughs> DARPA, of the US Military Cybernetics Division. The military inspiration came from stories of the Israeli use of a simulated environment to accomplish the mission of saving hijacked Israeli citizens in Antebbe in Uganda. Not to be outdone by those Israelis, though, DARPA thought to do one better and not just build a fake environment, but actually simulate one. Plus, it's so much cheaper. And that's always an American investment. So um, the project, however, was not classified. And this feature recognizes another fact. Even as counterterrorism and urban warfare had become pressing issues by the 1960s with decolonization, mandating new military strategies of which we have to understand these simulations as part of them, there was also another war going on. The urban riots of the late 1960s, sparked by Martin Luther King's assassination and increasing tensions as whites split urban areas, erasing tax bases and refusing de facto, even if not de jure, to desegregate America's geography, economy, or politics, had prompted a new discourse of war and crisis in America's cities. And it's important to remember Architecture Machine Group is located in the School of Urban Planning and Design. Media Lab actually emerged out of the architecture and urban uh, design schools. And um, much of Negroponte's writing in, in his architecture machines and soft architecture machines emerged um, was about <coughs> urban planning and implementing computing into the urban environment. So um, there's an urban setting at MIT. Um, many of the planners were deeply engaged in the, in the contemporary issues at, happening in the United States. But there, urban planners and designers had long turned away, even before the 1960s, from discourses of the social um, to those of cognitive computing and communication and science. Environments came to be understood to emanate from interactions between agents, so they took on a psychological property, and possessing an affective or cognitive character. Designers consuming these discourses, increasing their return to personalization and interactivity, is a solution to race warfare. So we kind of have to think about the um, emergence of sort of the idea of an interactive environment and personalization in relationship to these more structural transformations in political economy, uh, race, and class in the United States. The question of the social disappears here into the issue of information management, the result being the rise of the responsive environment, a term that Negroponte is often credited with starting, and is now a centerpiece of architecture and urban design pedagogy. So in almost any school you will go to of architecture design, you will have entire sections dedicated right to interactive, responsive, environmental design. Um, so Aspen emerges a solution, the supposedly first fully responsive environment, an individualized but network way to negotiate space, a new form of life to answer perhaps to the seeming ruins of modern urbanity, a simulation that could become life itself. This model, as I mentioned, is now considered his, by many historians to be the predecessor of first shooter games, military simulation in both battlefield and PTSD treatment, and also systems like Google Earth, even though those are going away. So, and I also have to emphasize while I'm using MIT as a case study, similar ideas of behavior, cognition, and machine-human interaction pervaded the human sciences throughout the 60s and 70s. So, demo or die one, but the world wasn't always an immersive demo. In the late 1960s, architects and designers at MIT, inspired by cybernetic ideas and also by artificial intelligence that kind of waver between them, that machines, minds, and humans might be thought together began asking how computing might aid design. From the beginning, the effort was to produce, in Negroponte's words, a conversation. 
computer intelligence and human intelligence were not initially supposed to be the same thing. Rather, there should be two different intelligences that can inform each other and make design go. Computers, Megaponte argued, should not replicate or automate what designers already do. So there's no, he didn't just want the computer to like render nicely. He wanted the computer to actually augment or transform how you acted as a designer. So um, they wanted, he wanted that the computer could challenge designers to do things differently. So to start this conversation, at the point still under the influence of symbolic AI, influenced heavily by Minsky, and still married to ideas of language, perhaps representation, having machines understand, so to speak, what architects say, the group began its first demo. So this is an example. The first efforts for architecture machine group came with Urban 2 and 5. You're seeing an Urban 5 setup behind me, which were block arrangement programs for what we call micro worlds, which are highly delimited spaces with highly specified rules that would compare what a designer said and how they acted. The system had different states. I could be a therapeutic or procedural or whatever uh, designer, and each of those states would constrain the kind of actions I could take. And this was like really baby. Today we would consider these systems you know, infantile and uninteresting, but at the time people were really excited. So um, the computer system was supposed to learn and monitor from the designer the relationship between the state as I mentioned, that the designer chose, the kind of actions they took to solve a very simple design problem, moving a couple blocks around on the screen. Um, and, there, and then there was also a questionnaire that designers would respond to. The system was essentially supposed to isolate and predict the design process itself. So the point wasn't that, oh look, you're gonna be able to like just simulate a house here, and was that the system would actually understand the design process and types of design. So you're focusing here on the process that the system can anticipate types of design, what kind of designer would do, uh, what kind of work a designer would do. So um, it, it was supposed to be sort of this conversation, not just uh, the machine as a tool. Unfortunately, it didn't work very well. The system was not very full of play, in the word of its designers, and the interface was dull. But no matter for despair, for every failure is only a demonstration of why more technology is necessary at the media lab. Demos here don't offer proof of a nature outside the lab, but rather make the lab a world. They're evidence of nothing except the expectation there'll be another version of technology in the future. Of course, why we needed more machines in architecture wasn't clear. And I want to mention there were already uh, many computer-aided design project programs available from big architectural firms like SOM at the time. But Negroponte had this idea of, of the machine as actually learning or um, isolating the design process, not just serving as a sort of um, rendering tool. So one of the overwhelming assumptions about the demo as an epistemology, as a way of knowing, was a new idea that designers don't solve problems. They use, they problem worry, to use the language of cybernetician Gordon Pass, that um, a British cybernetician, I might add, that was adopted by uh, Negroponte. So now, instead of problem solving, we're gonna problem worry. Uh, so we have to anticipate new problems as designers. Maybe create new problems, not fix existing ones. This is a very new kind of preemptive design, very interesting transformation and temporality of design practice. This form of learning, and perhaps knowing the world, is historically specific. Designers like Charles Eames, who's a very, very famous information designer from the US, even in the mid 20th century, would talk about problem solving and constraints. This is an image of the design, of, of the design process by Eames uh, for a very famous exhibition um, called What is Design at the Louvre in Paris in 1969. As you can see, design for him is sort of, is sort of uh, very bounded. You see these kind of bounded spaces between the client, the design firm, and the society. Um, and sort of good design happens at the merger where all these things meet. Um, so the network is really bounded. It's in here, and problems have to be bounded, they have to be represented, they can't just be generated in an ongoing logic um, that extends the domain of design everywhere. ArcMap's discourse separates wildly from this. Design isn't a bounded field, and it's never even clear who is a designer. Negroponte would talk about architecture without architects, right? He wanted everyone to be able, we're all designers now, DIY. Um, so uh, basically, the idea is that uh, you know, design is in a bounded field and it's never clear who is a designer. And one wouldn't even ask the question, what is design? Whatever works. The epistemology of the demo this has to be seen as part of a broader historical shift at the time, by now documented in many places in the sciences, but also it's important to think about engineering and design between ideas of absolute or 
positive truth, you know, one best way to build something, and a few towards a focus on process and pragmatism. Demo's role is to produce problems that technologies can fix, to create accidents, if you will. Because we're now we're problem worrying, we're not problem solving, but let's create some problems. So demo or die too. For more play, since this urban didn't really work very well, or perhaps accidents or disasters, and search for ever newer domains by which to apply computing to design, architecture machine group turned to a new frontier art in another block world titled Seek. In a famous exhibition done for the Jewish Museum's um, software exhibitions, a very famous um, exhibition in the history of art in 1970, the exhibit consisted of a small group of Mongolian desert gerbils. Look at the cute, charming little gerbils sitting down there. Um, uh, chosen according to Negroponte, and this is a quote for their curiosity and inquisitive nature, and they were placed in this environment of plexiglass blocks that was constantly being arranged, rearranged by a robotic arm. You can see the robotic arm. The basic concept was that the mechanism would respond to the interaction of the gerbils with their habitat, the blocks, and would gradually, and I'm quoting here, learn their living preferences. So eventually there would be like a stable city for the gerbils, I guess, by observing their behavior and by how they moved the blocks. The dribbles that were there to introduce chance and non-mechanical behavior into the environment, the unpredictable, the accident, right, their dribbles. It's a system that's supposed to be able to assimilate change itself. So the focus here, in order to grow and learn, it expressed the desire automation of emergence. So the idea, right, is that the computer will be able to actually deal with these chance variables of the dribbles. Uh, so the desire to automate change. Um, and this machine, Negroponte argued in an interview, and I quote, was conceived as a cybernetic world model and, and I quote, a behaviorist laboratory for observation and experimentation. And here's the um, exhibition installed in the museum. And here is the catalog entry, life in a computerized environment. Can't wait to live there. It's a gerbil. Okay, anyway. Um, the experiment, unfortunately, went really badly. The computer's father show constantly collapsed, the problem being both the software and the hardware. The museum almost went bankrupt, it was so expensive. And the gerbils in the computer environment, and what might be seen as an omen, or maybe something should be understood as a simulation we could learn from, confused the computers, wrought havoc on the blocks, and ended up getting aggressive, violent, even hurting. There's reports of killing each other. No one thought to or could ask whether gerbils wished to live in a block-built micro-world. Perhaps it was not possible because in the demand for the demo, there's no place to ask about the effect of your demo, only in anticipation for the next demo, a sort of repetitive failure. No matter, demo or die, now literally having failed with block worlds, the team then decided why not solve the problem with the fact that at that time, computers just don't get metaphors, language, or apparently chance, by adding people to the equation. ArcNet had started by wanting to make computers smart, but very quickly they turned to making people and computer more compatible. So basically their focus of the lab so it starts to shift towards the interface and towards making computers and humans seamlessly um, compatible. So the focus uh, really, as I mentioned, moves to the interface as a, as a central concern. One of the first demos of how computers could aid urban design was an effort to engage African-American communities in the then increasingly tense racialized urban environment of Boston, Negroponte argued his approach would finally <coughs> surmount politics and solve problems so if computers could just solve the urban problem, it would be perfect. So it's a demo. This is basically a demo to show how technology could replace political decision making. To prove that the future of urban design lay with computers, they started running Turing-inspired tests on tenants in Boston's then underprivileged neighborhood, the South End, asking them what, what they wanted from design and from neighborhood improvement. Now, um, and here you can see images of these black men taking these Turing-inspired tests. Um, now, interestingly enough, there's no computer at the time good enough to actually answer these questions, so that whole thing is actually being run through this white guy sitting in the lower corner. Um, so it's a, but the point is it's a simulation arguing that in the future there should be computers. And it's really important to remember the kind of wish image that, you know, very often, um, you know, it's not that we, ha we have to imagine technologies into being as well. We have to desire them and we imagine what they're going to look like. And that's, I think, a major place for um, ethical and political intervention. But anyway, so this simulation is um, run through human beings. So the whole test is just an interface or demo. But Negropont argues, next, don't worry, eventually the computers will be good enough to answer your questions. 
Um, so the point is we need to start building these systems, right? Um, so it demonstrates the need for integrating computing into human decision making. In his words, circumventing political bias, but also, most importantly, he is also, in the meantime, we have new ideas since we're here talking about the subject. He has new ideas of subjectivity and population. And he says something really vital about this experiment um, and that relates, in my thinking, to the current paradigm we have of the cloud crowd. And I'll just read it. And he says, and I quote, the three user inhabitants that thinks this machine that probably not have said to another human, particularly a white planner or politician, to them the machine is not black, is not white, truly had no prejudices, of course not. Um, but then he said something really interesting to me. Machines would monitor the propensity for change of the body politic, and what would remove these machines from a brave new world is that they will be able to and must search for the exception in desire or need, the one in a million. In other words, when the generalization matches the local desire, are omnipresent, and they're like omnipresent, there's like barely any computers around yet, but uh, machines will not be excited. It's when the particular varies from the group preferences that machines will react, not to thwart um, not to thwart it, but to service it. So why do I care about this particular citation? What's key in this discussion is how ideas of norms and individuals becomes about capacities and differences. So this is a new type of machine that assimilates differences. It's the difference that's going to count, not the norm. Um, so it's a new form of planning that's being envisioned here that will serve no preordained organization and constantly grows by seeking to consume differences or varieties into the system. It's a model that assumes that many different agents making minute decisions can collectively produce an intelligent or smart environment without consciousness. And the new idea of population as a cloud or a source of difference, in his terms, <coughs> propensity for change. The automation of emergence of change itself as the very site here of technical invent, investment and design concern and its attendant biopolitics, of course, there's, I think, things we're trying to develop here and try to understand. And then Negroponte goes on to say something else. So we have this new subject, right, or lack of subject, this population that's a, that's, um, a kind of medium for change. Um, but, he all, but we also have a new idea of cognition. So uh, what kind of smartness is he proposing? In, in his groundbreaking uh, year, uh, book put out the same year titled The Architecture Machine, Negroponte established sort of a new cognitive environmental policy and he says something vital. So he opens the book saying that computer design cannot occur without machine intelligence. And this must be behavioral and must have a sophisticated set of sensors, effectors, and processors. Um, so this is a material intelligence, for starters, so there's no Cartesianism here. Um, and most importantly, this quote makes us realize in order to be able to think um, responsive environments, we had to rethink reason, what it is to think, and to reformulate sensation to make environment itself kind of not in the, not in a, not an external factor of the subject, but a medium. So it's really important the forms of intelligence being posited here are embodied, they're affective, they're sensorial, and they're behavioral. We've heard this. Um, throughout talks in this, but for me as a historian, of course, what I'm interested in is the rise of this idea of intelligence because it's not the same as previous notions of what constitutes intelligence. So we get this new equation where smart equals sensing. Um, and this statement, which uh, seems to be ubiquitous today, demonstrates how ArcMac began moving away from artificial intelligence centralized cognitive modes that sought to replicate human consciousness towards a new idea of intelligence is behavioral, sensory, and decentralized. So essentially, um, he, he goes on, Negroponte goes on to critique Minsky. Um, so no longer about conscious reason, but performative networks. And this is a broader shift to networks and thinking machine intelligence is radically different from a centralized, as I mentioned, or psychological intelligence. And intelligence, perhaps smartness, now out in the world, hooking up these many processing agents, um, so a new idea of intelligence that went with this new idea of population that was posited in the case of African Americans in Boston. And this new idea of intelligence was inspired by cybernetics, <coughs> particularly by um, Warren McCullough's work on neural nets, um, as well as the nation uh, neurosciences that were developing at the time at MIT. So what was um, Negroponte referring to? As I said, he was influenced by McCullough. Um, and he goes on to say in the architecture machine, he'll consider that an evolution aided by a specific class of machines 
Warren McCullough calls them ethical robots. What are these ethical robots that will now be the architecture machine? In the context of architecture, I'm going to call them architecture machines. And he has a very limited idea of ethical robot as just uh, something that can make decisions. Um, it's not a moral statement. Uh, so what was McCullough? So who is this guy, Warren McCullough, and why do we care? Um, basically because he's quite important in the development of this history. So he cites Warren McCullough, who, as I mentioned, helped develop neural nets and was a pioneer in the early cognitive sciences. McCullough was also a leader in the cybernetic movement. Cybernetics, as you may or may not so know, um, emerged from anti-aircraft defense research, um, also done at MIT, where basically people saw an equivalence between human behavior and machine behavior when shooting down planes, and began thinking humans and machines together in the language of logic. So um, it's perhaps of little surprise then that perception, particularly vision, should be a major center of computational and cognitive science concern and continues to be one of the central questions in machine intelligence since, after all, identifying enemies seems to be a big deal. In 1959, McCullough and his team, so back in um, 1943, McCullough introduces the idea of the neural net um, that many people here, I'm sure, can talk about much more than me. But in 1959, McCullough and his team had a breakthrough in thinking about sensing, about vision. In the landmark study, what the frog's eye tells the frog's brain, and the fact that the frog's eye is talking should already tell you something. In this paper, written at MIT, they opened with a simple question. Assuming a world of informatic overload, where our senses are always bombarded by inputs, how can we assume that all processing occurs in the brain? In short, considering all the data, how do we ever get a signal? Obviously, not because we only cognate up here. Clearly not. Um, apparently, you know, so basically they're, apparently, the, for them, the world was full of too much data, essentially. Um, for McCullough, the world is full of inputs, and the issue is going to be managing those inputs. And apparently that managing doesn't happen just in the brain, certainly in the mind, and forget about consciousness. These scientists discovered that frogs' eyes, and it's literally an isolated optic nerve separated from the brain, might still respond to transformations in the visual field. They worked on moving edge detectors in this frog's nerve and discovered a fiber that, and I quote, responds best when a small dark object, smaller than the receptive field, enters the field, stops, and moves about intermittently thereafter, end quote. And they concluded, and this is just remarkable, and I quote, the eye speaks to the brain in a language already highly organized and interpreted, end quote. Their fellow colleague, Arbib, summarized that this proves the frog's eye is literally an isolated, as I mentioned, isolated optic nerve separate from the brain could deal with universals like prey and enemy. In short, it's a Turing machine. Perception, therefore, became the same as cognition. <coughs> Autonomous entities like eyes began the process of abstracting and processing information. This analysis opens the possibility that perception itself, of course, is now modelable as a process. And so that kind of idea is really pretty key. It's extractable. And indeed, um, you know, this is still considered, I think, you guys can tell me better, of course, a landmark study, at least in the histories of developing computer vision. Um, this language also of, of sort of smartness and sensing also anticipates our contemporary faith, this is from a New York City example, of ubiquitous computing and sensing all embedded in the environment that can kind of <coughs> autonomously begin to create and um, analyze data from uh, the moment of um, input. So um, just like our little sensor networks that now pervade our urban spaces, filling the world with smartness, this is an eye extended into the body and out in the world, a vision that can materialize and act on its own, flies beaten, airplanes blown up, for example, and network cognition beyond the brain, and a new way to understand the differences between things. We're not talking about stable enemies or preys. We're discussing the algorithm or the process that decides the pattern of relationships to create certain outcomes. Cyberneticians and architects thus imagine this new world of neural processing, a smart planet where our brain nerves could be linked into our machines, generating the data we formerly called population and now label clouds, a crowd source made of intensive ener um, <coughs> energy. Such concepts of decentralized and networked cognition perception lay, of course, not only in the nation neurosciences, but also in computer science. So the other person that, um, Negro Ponte calls upon to develop the architecture machine is Oliver Selfridge, who was working um, also at the Rad Lab at MIT, and who is in close communication with McCullough and Pitts, who in the very same year, 1959, publicized 
the pandemonium architecture for pattern recognition. The pandemonium architecture is based on attempting to, um, is based instead of attempting to match two templates, so you don't have to like predefine what you're looking for. Um, instead, it's a world of what we call, of what he called demons, taken from the word, the Greek daemon, uh, which are like gerbils here to disrupt the linear and directed activities of, human, um, of humans. And today are, are understood as computer programs that run quasi-autonomously in the background. So um, they're not something that you're consciously in control of. So the idea was that you'd have these daemons that would operate in a decentralized manner um, in an architecture of parallel processing. Each demon, and here's another example of a uh, kind of cute comic example of this architecture. Um, each demon has a task, and there are parallel demons, and the tasks are built into tightly constrained <coughs> categories. For example, I, recognizing letters, and here's the first set of letters that this um, architecture managed to identify as an A. Uh, one demon deals with, so you have an input demon that runs out into the environment to seek um, inputs, and that, th those demons deal with like very small parameters. For example, uh, one demon deals with horizontal strokes. So for example, this demon, which is a neural net cluster basically, will emit a shriek, <laughs> whose intensity is proportionate to how closely the data fit its uh, it search, uh, fits its search and decision-making criteria. So it will shriek, for example, more loudly with letters A or T if it's for a, you know, kind of a straight line, uh, and less so with, than uh, with an O or an S. At the next hierarchical level, uh, the cognitive demon would be attentive, so all these nets are firing, and whichever area of the architecture has the loudest shrieks or the most firing, the next level would attend to these shrieks and would assign a value based on the relative weights or intensities of the shrieks. Other demons would be forming, and they get, like I said, it's all happening in parallel, so there's um, disparate tasks at each level, subjecting the letter to grids of various types. And the data they gather would eventually be funneled up the demon hierarchy until finally a judgment is rendered by the decision-making demon um, according to the number of shrieks at different levels. Um, so here, reading can occur without uh, centralized thinking, and intuitive actions appear as computers make decisions like eyes and gerbils and people um, through a new architecture of decentralized networking. The entire data set or the environment inhabited by the pandemonium model is, is in this way rendered globally active through the busy presence of <coughs> um, seeking demons that are going out into the world seeking inputs. So it's entirely material. So um, these two new models of computation, these two new computational eyes or perception machines, that stretch into the environment while decentralizing action and decision making. So the environment, as you will, has become filled with processes. So it's a new cognitive sensory process that is material and scalable. So we have this kind of new equation about, as I mentioned, about sensing equaling smartness. Um, that's constantly operating like command, the computing that stretches out into the environment, down into the machine, a world where not thinking and analytics and seeing and sensing could all be envisioned in terms of minute autonomous processes. You don't have to dictate from the top but can actually kind of autocratically build out of the system. So this new neurocognitive machine that stretches into the body and out of the world is constantly analyzing, producing action, decision-making in rhizomatic fashion without centralized control. So it's a new way to network our nervous eyes and literally pandemonic machines into circuits of ongoing computation. This is the kind of logic that's driving um, what McCullough hopes will be machine learning in design, um, not McCullough, Negroponte. So armed now with these new kind of strategies, um, the imperative of the lab, uh, we're trans so our, the imperative of the lab was appeared to get machines to network more closely to people, to evade the question even of what is human and what is machine, by shifting to the issue of the system. How can agents, human, machines, animals, be hooked together to perform more, if you will, smartly or optimally? In the course of this shift, however, so as we move towards these new architectures of decentralized thinking, new ideas of population, older issues of identity, um, race, and class are repressed. They seemingly disappear, but it must be remembered that it's through the conduit of others, animals and humans, that these systems find their inspiration around which their architectures are configured. So in many ways, it's the place for criticality and history to <coughs> excavate the way that we are actually modeling these systems and the histories that actually animate 
our imaginaries around um, smartness and smart cities. This move away from identity and ontology is refracting the very notion of the demo, a form of truth production that is not about what something is, but what it does, a purely behavioralist mode of knowing, but one no longer tied to the older behavioralist logic of the F. Skinner and others that link this action back to genetics or nature. So this is a purely performative epistemology about finding patterns and always enhancing, increasing, and modulating information flow. This I that cannot think or be smart is also an I amenable to modulation and enhancement, an expanding I. So having given up symbolic language, turned to the pure performance of the demo, and basically adopted the new agent-based ideas of cybernetics, this I had to be extended, enhanced, and turned into architecture, an emergent notion of intelligence, as I mentioned, as smart, decentralized, environmental, and networked. Demo or die for the Media Lab uh, motto, every test, a reason for another DARPA grant, uh, and a reason to encourage more computing penetration into the environment. Within a few years, Negroponte publishes a new book, Soft Architecture Machines. In this new soft world, the actual computer disappears from sight, the environment <coughs> itself immersively connected to the user. All discussions of speech and conversation drop, and the lab commits itself almost entirely to the interface as the site where the future of computing will rest. This is not, however, the interface as a screen, but one of uh, the interface as environment. This new approach was centered around a new structure, the media room. This room, which you see here, this room had quadraphonic sound, seamless floor-to-ceiling displays, probably a couple million dollars of hardware running the room. It was an immersive environment, fully networked in the sense and computation, perhaps an end of architecture into media. And in fact, soon thereafter, the lab drops the term architecture and just calls itself the media lab. Um, so one of the pioneer projects, one of the first three-dimensional environments was the Aspen movie map, and I return to it now. As the questions of race, urbanization, war, and society fade into the common race of interaction, we're forced to confront what it means to live in this eternally extendable computer-enhanced world. What had started before and therefore as game theories on, uh, around military concerns and then simulations of artificial intelligence has now become about total life. Uh, concerns with language, symbolic thought, all reflect, all replace with affect and interactivity. Here, personalization replaces subjectivization, perhaps creating the site as individual, and individual non-conscious response becomes the focus. As we watch the map slowly unfold, the video enclosing us, with historical distance, we can see the idea of a self-organizing system now networked literally into our attentive systems. The environment slowly spirals away into the affective space of preemption. We await the next bend in the road, even as the network remains invisible, the user both highly individuated and simultaneously constantly linked to networks of machines and media. If anything, then, the Aspen movie maps cannibalize older structures of visioning and gaze, ones of television, video, and cinema, and so-called a movie, in the interest of consuming the possibility of evidence or witnessing altogether. I might ask if this is the genealogical underpinning of what the anthropologist Rosalind Morris has argued is the narcissistic economy of contemporary warfare and torture. Under such conditions, circulating images do not produce evidence, proof, or emotional attachment, even if negative, only an imperative to circulate more images. Thus, soldiers who torture prisoners, for example, in Abu Ghraib, continue to circulate images of their work despite potential judgment by military tribunal without, in Morris's words, satisfaction on the internet. And we as a public see them, but only as an incentive, perhaps, to use Facebook or YouTube and not, as one might hope, as an invitation to action or commitment to stop these actions. So I'm trying to think here about the kind of incredible violence of these systems. And the ability to always feed the image of ourselves to ourselves in the near future and make it impossible to feel shame or remorse. Morris Dunnally argues we cannot encounter difference. We cannot just encounter the other in the field of vision. The imperative encounter is renegotiated towards an <coughs> interactivity and informational circulation. Game and play here become serious affairs, years past the era of recognition of the world out there, and pure action of pattern-seeking, cadencing, and affect. Perception and cognition are compressed into a single channel and agglomerated at the level of populations. Under such conditions, the screen does not, as I mentioned, serve any anthropocentric function, but rather serves to recruit the user at the level of nervous energy. Literally, if we're thinking about how the nervous systems 
and our um, intelligences are being reconfigured and psychic energies into the network. And the possibility of violence is escalated to the fact that we're ever more responsive while simultaneously assuming the only political action is one of jamming or stopping the flow of information, usually through different forms of terror, both state and otherwise. This returns me, of course, to Sando. Is it any surprise the city of pure interface rises up to agglomerate literally nervous attention in the interest of turning it into money? A direct conduit where every interface is only a form of practice to enter a network, not a representation of the world. As language is increasingly replaced by affect and the interface disappears entirely as we become increasingly directly linked from our neurons and optic nerves into our environments, this leaves me with some critical questions. How are we to encounter this demo or test bed that has now become our world? How are we to encounter difference, complexity, and chance? In an age where chance itself, the changes in the system are the very site of automation that must produce a politics and criticality in research creation practice of chance and complexity. This returns me to the question of art and wisdom <coughs> very soon, and the small, sad dribbles in their excessively responsive environments. In this case, the logistics of computation had folded upon itself to produce something other from what was intended, but also radically nihilistic. In the non-conscious effort to thwart the machine or surprise it, the dribbles turned against themselves, a sort of systemic paranoid schizophrenia, where an external force is reimposed as an internal force, and an act that replicates reactionary politics. But this sad, sorry, and here's the bright lining to all of this. But this sad story also offers some opportunity, for it demonstrates the unknowability of the future and the radical alienness of computing. So I kind of insist on computing as not necessarily human. The systems never behave as we expect them to. So once we scale up, what are the opportunities of thinking about this sort of question of accident and chance? If this folding, this impossibility of system, systemic stability is pushed elsewhere, perhaps reattached to different histories without seeking to automatically repeat them, or activated not in repetition, but towards encountering difference, what would emerge? This returns me to Faruqi, and I'm going to end here in a place of critical practice in disrupting the present. And one of the things that I'm, I'm hoping to make a call here is that we have infinite, not, we have a lot of choice, basically, in how we design and how we imagine our computer systems. And for me, that is always um, a site of contention and potential imagination. So um, I'm just going to play this for one minute. So we're heading on a convoy out of Iran, out of Baghdad. End of the day, dusk. It's about like this. Very quiet, very peaceful. I go through the desert. Been a long day, didn't have any trouble with that. That had to worry. Then the first thing I know that set me off is some small arms fire on the distance. So if there's one thing that all demos that die desire, it is the evacuation of historical temporality and meaning for responsiveness and interaction. Each demo is a thing in itself, a world only referential to its related demos. He also recuperates, Kruki does, what I have tried to do throughout this talk, the histories of race, violence, war, difference, and sex that are the necessary but never recognized substrate of our contemporary media systems. They're the models, they're the pathologies that we use to construct our contemporary um, intelligences. The installation does this by creating a strange effect, but we hear the memory of the soldier in slight advance of seeing through his eyes. We're both allowed, therefore, so there's kind of a weird disjuncture there between the voice and vision. We're allowed, therefore, into the mind and eye of this subject, 
while simultaneously being encouraged to view him as different or other than the spectator. We're interpolated into empathy without identification. The installation, while multimedia and channel, just continually asserts our encounter with psychic pain, a drama we can suddenly see, almost because other forms of information have been made so repetitive. It is in this moment where we share memory out of sync with media flow that we, too, are being conditioned by this apparatus, and we are for, perhaps forced to recognize our complicity within these networks of violence. This moment of encounter emerges not through a reactionary disavowal, and this is kind of a key point. I actually like the, the media lab. I like a lot of what Negroponte does. There's a lot to learn from architecture machines. Um, so it's not about disavowing our contemporary digital media or throwing out our computers, but literally by embracing the demo, which is what Faruqi is doing, through using the media and reenacting it. But we're not permitted to engage with the die element of the demo element because we cannot complete the channel and we have nothing to consume. We're both alienated in a Brechtian manner, perhaps, and made intimate with pain, a double move that facilitates empathy without either identification or assimilation. So just to finish, Ruki once argued that, and I quote, reality has not yet begun. So I don't know what we're talking about, virtual reality. It has not begun because we cannot witness or experience the death or suffering of others, whether animals or human with love. In saying so, he awakens us to the fact that the demos of our digital and electronic media are not simulations because there's no world to which they refer or replicate. We are building the world. What our demos do is remove our ability to care and insert our ability to consume <coughs> analyze data. Um, but in this practice, this art piece that I showed, as in so many other practices of criticality and art making and hoping in the conversation between the humanities and the sciences, we hopefully aspire to push our media conditions so they fold, not towards the nihilism of the poor dribbles, but towards the possibility of care, a weak but in Benjaminian terms still messianic possibility always inherent within our media systems, that we realize humanity through our machines, not against them. This opens the possibility for criticality when they can resist the dying <coughs> of demoing. This comes from attempting to excavate the latencies and ruptures within media systems by attaching a relentless belief in real time and in the future to recall that systems always <coughs> bring encounter with a radical foreignness or alienness and incommensurability between <coughs> performance, futurity, and desire becomes the radical potential for so many of our contemporary social movements, arts, and politics. Is, um, so I want to give a response to end on to the architecture machine's problem worrying, or perhaps intensify its logic. To problem worry is to assume we do not yet know what media or life will be. It is the potential in all this demoing that I seek to excavate. There's much to learn from architectural and other machines, but it must be separated from death. The goal of critical scholarship and artistic and scientific practices is to make media unstable and to turn not to solving problems, but to imagining new worlds beyond or exceeding the demands of war and consumption that kill signification, experience, and time itself to demo without death. Thank you.